Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 138th show. Today, our guests are uh, Peter Desberg and Jeffrey Davis, author of Pitch Like Hollywood. And I can tell this is a super popular book because we have people from all over the world who've signed up to listen to this interview today. And I'm so thrilled to have both of you guys on. Thank and you. so why don't, why don't we start off with Peter, you giving us about your background, and then Jeffrey, you can talk about your background. Okay. Well, um, spent most of my life as a, a boring university professor, which I guess is redundant, um, <laughs> but basically in the area of cognitive science. And I later went back and got a, a clinical psychology license. Um, in addition, I used to run a... a a Sunday morning cable show teaching people to create instructional software. And it was uh, me against the televangelists on Sunday morning. It was very exciting. Um, spent a lot of time writing books. Um, being uh, an academic, uh, one of the things that uh, I did was uh, Jeffrey and I did some research in the area of uh, so we call it academic humor, and I dragged Jeffrey to uh, a couple of academic humor conferences and talk about an oxymoron. <laughs> I spent 18 years in academia myself. You know, you know the drill. <laughs> Jeffrey, how about your background? Uh, I am, uh, I have never passed a science or math course in my life. I, I, um, depend on Peter to do the adding and subtracting. I, I am three generations show business. My great uncle was a film composer and a lot of step parents that were actors and, and producers. And my dad was a writer producer. So I came to it. Um, and actually, the, the truth is, is I told my dad I wanted to, uh, to, to go into, uh, show business and uh he begged and pleaded with and unfortunately because i was 25 i didn't listen and uh so but so that's what i've been doing how many years did you spend in the industry yourself um uh, i spent about 35 and i still dip my toe in occasionally um one of the and nice what shows things, did you work on or did you oh my god with? <laughs> well, certainly nothing that won a Peabody Award. Let me start. There. I start. I think my my first job was uh, doing a bunch of love boats, uh, which you know. And you look back on that, I used to think, oh gosh, this is it was a great show because so many writers got hired on it because it was a, you know it was an anthology series. And I worked on Night Court and, oh, gosh, uh, different strokes. Most of the stuff that Norman Lear produced but didn't actually have uh, his hand in uh, except as an executive producer. So um, 
give me a break, lots of those shows. And then later got into uh, documentary writing and um, and then in the mid 2000s uh, started producing, uh, did, uh, visited Canada a lot, which is around the time I met Peter. He pulled me out of um, going to Canada in the winter. So. Well, I'm glad to have you both here. So guys, oh, why you. did you write this book? And it's a terrific book, obviously, from especially all the people who are signing on to listen. Mm-hmm. Go, oh, well, I'll, I'll just say that um, this is Peter's book. He he had the idea for the book. And the minute he told me the premise of it, and of course, it's morphed and grown over the time that we wrote it. I said, I, I really have to be involved in this book because um, I've. All, my whole career, I had problems with with stage fright and pitching and persuasion. And the thing that I think is really cool about this book is that unlike a lot of the books on the subject, there's a lot of material on persuasion and stage fright. And um, so I knew it was a book that that I wanted to read. So then I had to help write it. And that, that's my story. It was, and Peter? It was, it was interesting that Jeffrey and I um, wrote a couple of books where we interviewed Hollywood comedy writers. And one of the things that kept coming up in these interviews were pitching stories. And so Jeffrey and I initially said, let's write a book on how to pitch better. And as we were, and it was, it was really meant for Hollywood. And as we kept doing it, um, we kept saying, you know, these principles are omni-applicable. You can use these anywhere. But it took the uh, the Harvard Business Review uh, writing an article saying um, we we have some money to do the biggest scale research study on pitching ever, and we're going to go to the most difficult arena there is, Hollywood. And I was, of course, I mean these these principles run across just about every field. And so, what's your Peter? What's your definition of pitching? You know, that's a great question. Because in the beginning of the book, we talk about a lot of stories where pitches happened without the intention of it being a pitch. And just by circumstance, elevator pitches, et cetera, it ended up being, you know, great shows got started that way. But we said for our purposes, it's a scheduled meeting where you have a specific thing that you want to present to people. And, and uh, Jeffrey, what, how do you define pitch? Um, uh, the same way, I would just add that we talk a lot in the book about the idea of pitching as selling is the wrong idea. That a pitch, um, and we're probably going to talk a lot about this today. Yeah. A pitch is a conversation. If, if uh, uh, nobody likes being sold something. Nobody likes being, because being because selling something is talking at someone. And, and what we learned through all the interviews we did, and I, I just think from our own experience, is if you engage the buyer, for want of a better word, um, in a conversation, you may or may not sell what you came to pitch that day, but you're selling yourself as you're presenting yourself as well as the product. And I think that's what a lot of people forget when they pitch. They just want to present and get out of that room as fast as possible because it's not comfortable. 
One so, of the things that we, we decided, Jeffrey came up with a really good idea of saying, let's find people who've been really successful in pitching and get some stories about this. Uh, we balanced that with, you know, being a boring academic, having a lot of research in there as well, and found some incredible stories. And to illustrate the point Jeffrey's talking about, um, we interviewed a woman who uh, is the head of a uh, um, an advertising agency. And she talked about when she was starting out, she went uh, on a pitch and the, the art director was was pitching somebody from a tire company. And he said, we have six different approaches. What do you think? And the guy said, I hate every one of them. And she's thinking, that's it, I'm dead in the water. But again, this principle of a conversation, this guy was so clever. And he said, which one do you hate the least? <laughs> and he got the guy talking and he really talked about what he was looking for, which they got to hear and eventually got the gig. And, and it was good that that person was a good listener. Uh, Jeffrey, do you, from doing this uh, as a career, is this more art or science? Oh, um, I think it's a calm, well, I've never thought about, you know, I didn't think about that consciously until Peter brought it up, but it's, I think it's both. Um, you have to have, an, and I'll substitute the word craft for science. Um, I think that you have to have certain skills. You have to do your homework. Those are all, that's all the science of it, the preparation of it. But it's also, it's an art because for everything you sell, you're not going, you know, for every pitch you make, maybe one, I don't even know what the statistics are because I've never looked, but what's important is to build relationships. And that's how I look at it. So I mean, that's the art of it is like, you know, you have to come in giving, knowing who that person is. That's the, that's, and, and that's the science, but the art is listening. Well, and, but to, st to stick up, yeah, for and, science, yeah. to stick up for science a little bit, um, there's been a tremendous amount of research in a lot of areas that if you know, gives you a real leg up. And some of it are just little things you would never think about that make a huge difference. Um, you know, for example, you know, we think it's funny that people don't usually pay attention to issues like what time of day do you want to pitch if you have a choice? And the research is really clear, the earlier the better because there's a phenomenon called decision fatigue. And as you get, if you have a really important decision to make and you're feeling a little bit kind of, you don't want to make that big decision. But in the morning, people make those decisions more. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the same as you do. I, I love this in the book. Uh, there's a story in the beginning about your friend presenting a movie idea to a studio uh, and he ends up pitching to a dog. And I actually uh, watched that movie that they're uh, that they're referring to, and I want you to tell the story. Please explain what happened and why this is relevant to your book. the The head of New Line Cinema has a German Shepherd that he absolutely loves. He's got doctor's notes up and down, so he can take the dog pretty much anywhere. And so, um, our friend was a producer, came in with his writer. And they started pitching and they were well into the pitch. And all of a sudden he says, excuse me, I have to make a quick phone call. 
And as he's about to walk out the door, he says, keep pitching. Which means basically it's the dog that's lying on the couch. And so they look at each other and they, and they start laughing, saying, are we being punked? Do you think they're videotaping this? Yeah. And then they decided, you know what? Let's pitch the dog. And they did. And then he came back toward the end and he, he bought the project. And I think one of the things that's, that really was <coughs> interesting in that story to me was the, the difference between just pitching versus really making contact with people because they definitely saw, hey, this dog is important to this guy. We don't want to denigrate that. And so what they saw was the humanity of these people being willing right. to do that and treating his dog seriously that probably helped sell it. Although he'd like to say he thought the dog liked the pitch. <laughs> I I would have said the same thing about my English bulldog, Roxy. If she didn't like it, I probably am not going for it. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, how, that, how that's much... my yeah, that's my favorite on, story in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I love that story. I wondered like when uh, uh, when they pitched Seinfeld, how did they pitch that when it's a, when it's a show about nothing? Like what what did that Jeffrey, what did that pitch must have looked like? Well, first of all, the truth about that situation is that they both were very famous at that point, Seinfeld and Larry David. And nobody wanted to do the show, though, um, because they didn't know what it was. Um, they, I do know the circumstances of that. and they're They're unusual. But again, you have two people who already have who are famous and have reputations, um, uh, especially Seinfeld at that point. And, and what they basically did is uh, they said, we'll give you four episodes. And then it caught on. I mean, that's very uncommon even today is to say for a network, for one of the major four to say, we'll only give you four shows. And they thought, and the network thought, in its usual wisdom, that it was going to die. It's not really, but I think the trick of that show is it's not a sitcom. And that's what the network thought it was. And it's not a show about nothing. If you really look at the show, the the best of those seasons, it, the show kind of fizzled after Larry David left the show. Um, it's really an illustrated it, you know, you remember that it always started and ended with 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 Jerry Seinfeld doing a, a stand up. Yeah. And they went to the show and they were whatever he was talking about that week, they illustrated it in the show. So it wasn't your standard four camera sitcom. And I, and I think it was just luck and timing. People were ready for something different. But I would I I think that was an inside joke that there was a show about nothing. Because it, it it really wasn't. They dealt with all kinds of issues in a comedic way. You know, even even the Kennedy assassination was probably that's probably you know, you know. But the the if you remember that episode, yeah, that yeah, classic episode. So I I never bought the I I always thought that that was sort of a PR thing that it was a show about nothing. Well, was there a, sh a show that became a hit that was? They kept pitching it over and over and nobody got it. And it finally somebody did get it and 
and it took off. And why did it take so long? You know, based on your experience of knowing the industry. Um, I, I, you know, I'm. I, if it would be okay with you, I'd switch that to features. Go ahead. Because um, TV works so differently. I can, there are. I made a list for you of movies that nobody wanted to make, and we just start with Forrest Forrest Gump, which took nine or ten years to get made. Nobody thought it would make a movie. And then when I think the same with Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., you just just go on and on and on, you know, and and what I really think is one of one of one of Peter's and my favorite human beings and said the great thing, uh, William Goldman, the great William Goldman writer, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid said nobody knows anything. And I think that's the real truth of 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 Hollywood and any other business. You don't know what's going to work. You know, I agree with you totally. You just stay with it. Um, the 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 real hero of the Forrest Gump thing, and there was a novel, by the way. So they weren't basing it. You know, it wasn't an original. It was based on a novel. Was a woman named uh, Wendy Feinerman who just stayed with that project for nine years and believes in it so much she was able to get other people to believe in it. And I think that's what you need in any industry. I think that's applicable to any form of business. You just have to have stick to itiveness and just. Right. Keep- I think that's what Jerry, you know, to come back to Seinfeld, they just really believed in the show and they wanted to do it because they wanted to have some fun together. They were old friends. And it's it's any area. I mean, yeah. You, know, you look at a book like Chicken Soup for the Soul, and yeah. that poor fellow just <laughs> no shoe leather left. He was knocking on every door and said, "Okay, I'll do it myself," and ended up making an industry out of it. You know, it's, it's funny you should say about the uh, need to do that. I wrote a book. My second book was called Small Business Turnaround. My publisher didn't want it, and I wrote to forty-eight publishers. And everybody was turning me down. I said, I'll even underwrite the book. I mean, I believed in it that much. Finally, one uh, publisher came back. To my original publisher said, I know somebody who might be interested. And that guy didn't even look at it. He just sent me a contract. And that book was named one of the 30 best business books in 2000. And yet nobody believed. They all thought, who wants a book on how to turn around the small business when all the other books on turnarounds were about like Chrysler, you know, big corporations. You know, if if you follow stories about how things get bought, how, I I had a book that it was it was a joke book. I thought it was very funny. I sent it around to thirty three publishers, got turned down by just about everybody. Simon and Schuster ended up publishing it. Oh wow! So when I met my editor, I said, "How did you come to buy this book?" And he said, "This book is the result of a brownout in New York." Um, I was in my office one day. It was summer. Electricity was out. We don't have any windows in the Simon & Schuster building. It was really hot. My office door was open. It's never open. And I heard somebody laughing, so I walked out to see what it was. He said, one of my readers had your proposal and was laughing. I said, well, you know, even if it had been a regular air-conditioned day, your reader likes it. Oh, I never listen to my readers. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so, so what does a Hollywood pitch look like, uh, which you write about in the book, and how is it different from pitching other types of industries? Peter, I think the. <clears throat> let me give you a, a sort of bigger answer first. Um, 
because we talk a lot about the use of story. And in, in cognitive science, there's a tremendous amount of research about how people remember stories way longer than facts. There's a plethora of research. We know this. Um, and the two things that Hollywood pitches really thrive on, they, they work really hard on getting curiosity in the listener, building that up, and using a lot of emotion. Two things that in business usually... And that was not me, whatever that sound was. <laughs> I'm going to be on record. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so infusing those things into a pitch. The, the other thing is in a, in a pitch, you want the person to reach forward and say, what happens next? Rather than saying, here's my PowerPoint. Let me show you the four stages of development. And you know, in, in a good Hollywood pitch, it's like you always avoid getting to the ending because you want them to ask. So you can hand them your screenplay and say, here's your chance to Shut up, Mark. Um, anyway, so again, you want to get people curious about what it is, and you want to try and Jeffrey! and you want to get as much involvement as you can all the way through it. Jeffrey, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I, I think that's excellent. I would just say that we should always remember that just to, that any great pitch tells a story. And the minute you forget that, that you're in this business of storytelling, I don't care what your product is, you're going to lose your audience. Oh, my Lord. Something, I'm getting some kind of interference on my end. I hope nobody else can hear that. I have no one. Yeah, we don't know why that's. Oh, my Lord, Peter, Peter. Now they're asking for Peter. <laughs> that's very strange. I have no idea. Um, I use duct tape on everybody in the house to make sure. <laughs> Sarah, my Lord. <laughs> so, uh, well, see, we're building up curiosity now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I just think it's really important to tell stories, and I think that was the Vivian. I mean, the thing that we came to in in as we worked on the book and as the book morphed, and I, I think we realized that we had to get really great stories to illustrate. The point and I, I can tell you the little story we have in the book that um, I had somebody come in to see me who worked in a uh, in an, as an investment banker. He was a young guy out of Stanford on the fast track. And he said, every week I have to appear before the board with the stats from a new company, present it so they could see if they want to invest in it. He says, all I'm doing is spewing numbers and I'm looking at glazed over eyes. And I get so scared doing this because I know there's just nothing going on. And so we said, well, let's try an experiment. Let's do, let's use three act structure and change the way you present it. And so all of a sudden in the first act, he, he created um, some curiosity in terms of what is this company doing? What are their goals? How are they doing it? 
In the second act, we built up the conflict and said, here are the risks, here are some issues we need to really look into. And in the third act, we resolved it. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm finding that I'm using like half the numbers I used to use because if it doesn't move the story along, that number isn't necessary. And he says, I'm getting a great response from the people I'm talking to now. And the other people at my level have now adopted the same procedure when they're giving their, uh, their presentations. I, I'm curious to know, and Jeffrey, maybe you know the answer to this, is how many TV and movie scripts does a major network see each year? It's gotta be like venture capital, so I'm guessing in the thousands. And, no. and what's the success rate of getting a pilot or a movie greenlit? And what's the chances you'll even have financial success? So what, what do those numbers look like? So let, if with your permission, I'll, I'll break this into a couple of parts. Um, so <laughs> I've actually done the research on this. And also some of it is just being around people in the industry every day, working as I do at, at Loyola with people who are not real teachers, but writers. You know, we're, we're sort of, we come to teaching as a second career. Um, so the you asked about pilots. So let, yeah. let's talk for a minute about the networks. So because even, even as everybody is saying, and I think this is really important for everybody to hear in case they're contemplating a, a career in television, there are so many more opportunities in television if you count streaming if you count cable if you count all you know and we can't even count the number of streaming platforms but the most money is still to this day in the four major networks so what happens at a network i'll just break this down really quick what happens on a network is that in the spring um people usually pitch oh Maybe in the close to 70,000 stories, and these are not beginners. These are people who are writer, producers, showrunners. Um, and then by the end of the summer, the uh, networks, the four networks, typically ask to, to see, um, they'll take about 500 out of that 100 or whatever, 1,000. And then out of that, in the fall, they'll ask for the they'll ask for scripts to be written. And each network, this is the numbers are really interesting here. And I'm not a numbers guy, but this really is is fascinating to me. Out of that, seventy pilots are written um, and shot for each of those four networks. If you think about it, I'm sorry, seventy are get to the writing stage, so where the person is or team, they're paid for the scripts, but only 20 in each network get shot. And I couldn't tell you how many get get made, but it's small. So you can see how small that is. I mean, like that's, that's 60 out of 100,000. Right, but that's only the major, the majors. There are, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, which is really blowing up right now because they were smart enough to make deals with all the major networks. And and they don't necessarily even have to write pilots. Um, if you're um, 
if you're uh, Dan and Amy Paldino, who created Gilmore Girls and the in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they're not going to ask you for a pilot, no matter what network you're on. But certainly because they chose to do it on Amazon, I believe probably because of the freedom, you get a lot more freedom on the streamers. So, uh, it, but that's the basic number. Now, would you like to hear the film stats? Because that's yeah. a, okay. <laughs> and, and and Peter will tell you he's the stat guy, not me. But I just find this fascinating. So let's just take tentpole movies. Um, the people here don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a. I don't go to see tentpole movies. My children are going now. So everybody, you all know what a tentpole movie is. You're talking about like the Marvel movies. Marvel movies. Yeah, exactly. Um, or the Bond. The Bond franchises. It's, right. Yeah, those kinds of things. So, so the budget now is between two and three. Hundred million dollars, and then let's not let's not even talk about Avatar because that's so. I don't know how that movie is the sequel is going to make its money back. Um, it'll be interesting. So global box office has to be at about a billion dollars. So each studio makes about seventy movies a year, sixty movies a year. Um, so. Uh, you get the odds. Um, my advice to anybody is what I tell my students, both the grads and the undergrads, go into television because you're going to work. Movies, smaller. It used to, it used to be that, and I'll finish up by saying that, it used to be that nobody wanted to work in television, that it was considered if you wanted to go and work in movies, TV was considered uh, the graveyard. Inferior, yeah. Yes. And now everybody, I think it's partly the advent of, of, of the showrunner, but everybody wants to work in TV. And some of the best movies are being done, financed. The, one, the movie that won the Academy Award last year was financed by Apple. So it was Coda. So yeah. So, you know, I think the game has changed considerably, but you're always going to have those tentpole movies. And it just seems like such a shame that they spend $300 million on these movies that only... Oh, uh, Peter, will you talk a little bit about the four box? Uh, uh, what That's the other element in getting a movie made. Yeah, the, when, when people are looking at the feasibility of a movie... Um, the industry has basically said you've got basically demographic areas that you have to look at, that you've got kids, you've got teens, you've got adults, you've got older adults. And basically, the more boxes you hit, the bigger the box office is going to be, and the more likely you're going to make your money back. Mm -hmm. So if you have like a... Um, a really scary horror film that has a little comedy in it that kids are going to like, but adults are also going to like, and it's going to bring in a ton of people. You right. have a better chance than if you have like a, a serious drama. Right. So they're, they're constantly looking at that because again, it's an investment. Right. And they're, they're just looking at their market. So, um, uh, Peter, you write you guys write in the book that um, when you're making a pitch, the decision's usually made in the first five to ten minutes. Why is that? 
Cold War, the uh, the effects of first impressions, it's it's difficult to overstate. And in the first five minutes, if it's a good pitch, you're going to be giving them the big picture of what you're doing. And that's what they're all listening for. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of impression you make, and, and again, what I'm saying is they're looking at the feasibility that not only do we like your idea, but we think you can pull it off is made very, very quickly. And everything else is sort of questioning, are you the kind of person that can actually bring this off? Now, you mentioned it's important to come off as creative. Why is that important? What are the benefits in terms of convincing your audience that they should invest in you, buy from you, or support you in, in whatever it is that you're pitching? You know, it's, it's interesting that people used to base um, IQ on, on these tests that sort of tested math and logic. And the more current view of looking at that also has a section on creativity and a section on problem solving. Mm. And so people are saying, okay, even if your idea is good, stuff is going to happen. Are you the kind of person that can pull it off? can deal with difficult situations, can deal with problems, mm -hmm. um, can deal with changing markets, can you know deal with different changes. So again, they're, they're looking at that because that's an index of how successful you're going to be under all the stuff that's going to be thrown at you. Right. Jeffrey, you have anything to add? I, I have an example of that. Um, my sister-in-law, who actually is interviewed in the book. I'm now, I think I can now reveal that she's my sister-in-law. Okay. Um, she is uh, a treasurer at Riot Games. And by the way, if we think about movies and television being uh, this big part of the entertainment industry, they do, they're, they are small compared to the amounts of money that gaming makes in the energy. And it is part of the entertainment industry. Anyway, she told us that they want to work now, they are dying to work with creatives because the the you know the technical people who make the games they are absolutely in they're necessary, but they can't write the games because they're not they don't they, their minds are you know their brains are wired differently. Uh, having never been a gamer. Uh, and I don't want to insult anyone here who is, I don't really understand the way a gamer's mind works, but I do know now a number of very successful creatives who are working in gaming. It's another area to go into in the entertainment business, as is podcasting. These things are all exploding. So you want creatives. I, I think that kind of addresses the question. Uh, I, I think that um, you get these big writers who are making deals at gaming companies, which we didn't see 15 years ago. You know, well, and, that, and, and they're just like a movie. I mean, these yes, games are yes. just like movies and they need creative writers to come up with. In fact, I, I was at an NFT conference, uh, basically a gamer conference. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, what's your biggest need? And it wasn't back end developers like it used to be. Mm -hmm. It's um, people to be able to come up with the creative ideas for the games and the graphical look and feel. That was the two most important yeah. things that they needed the most. The but two guys that, oh, I'm sorry, Peter, go ahead. There's interesting research now that kids 
are learning scientific method better through gaming than through their science lab classes. Oh, no surprise. Oh. Didn't help me. Why couldn't that have been around when I needed it? I'm with you, Jeffrey. <laughs> I think it's interesting just to note that the two brothers who produced this movie that was a big success last year. Every, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to blow up the title. I'm going to mess up the title. Everything All at Once, All the Time, or this mm. movie that came out and was just amazing and didn't cost a lot of money, by the way had Michelle Yeoh in it and Jamie Lee Curtis, and th those were the big names. But those two brothers just made a deal at Riot Games for millions upon millions of dollars. So that's a specific, I just saw that in the, pay, in the variety the other day. So, you know, they want to work. It's the same thing. If you've been successful in one area, it's like if you write, I mean, Peter's a novelist. I know he's too shy to tell you that, but he's a novelist. The great thing for him is if he wants that, we're in a world now where if you have been successful in one area, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, oh, this worked in that area. So that means it's going to work for us. In fact, there's no scientific proof of that, but it's great that they think that because nobody wants to take risks. That's it's because it's still a money game. Well, and that's like Elon Musk. Everybody assumes whatever he touches is going to turn to gold, and we'll see if that happens in Twitter, right? Oh, God. Well, yeah. we're already seeing that. <laughs> so you guys write about the hook is really important. We know that when you go in, and, and we watch on Shark Tank, that what do they always ask him? Tell us your story. So yeah. how do you go, uh, Jeffrey, how do you go about developing the hook? Okay. Well, the hook is just this one line that makes you want to hear more. So um, basically, and Peter, you can jump in here because P Peter and I have done all of this work together, developing this. And by the way, this is just our opinion of what a hook is. I could find many other definitions of it. It's that single sentence that distills the story down and makes you want to hear more. Um, and Peter, <laughs> you as a novelist, what do you say? Well, yeah. It's just the, the important thing is you get the big picture view there right away. Right. And, you know, you're not giving them drips and drabs and making them come together with it. It's when, when a, a pitch is starting, you want to know what is this thing going to be about? And, you know, <laughs> There, there's an interesting thing. Um, years ago, um, I had the the opportunity to interview John Scully. Remember John ah, Scully? Yeah, sure. And I asked him at one point, what makes you such a great presenter? And he said, I don't think of myself as a great presenter, but I, I do have an MBA in marketing. And what they taught me was find out what your audience wants to know and tell them. And I, I can tell you, you know, for years and years, because I deal with people that have stage fright, they come in and they show me their presentations and they say, here's what I want to say. And then right away, we have to beat them down with a stick saying, no, no, no. What is it that your audience is going to want to know? How did Peter, what do you tell people to get them over stage freight? Because yeah. there have been very, very many famous people, even Bill Russell used to throw up before every single basketball game because he said of stage fright going out to the court. So uh, as a psychologist, what do you what's the 
what's the tools and everything that you give them to help them overcome that? And, and Jeffrey, I'd like to know what famous actors uh, oh. are you aware of that Any. suffer through this? <laughs> uh, go ahead, Peter, you first, because he's the expert. I'm. <laughs> well, I start with you should buy my book on stage fright. Um, yeah, <laughs> but have a conversation it's, with it. <laughs> but it, it's it's important to understand that there aren't haves and have-nots. It's mm-hmm. situational, and under the right circumstances, everyone will get it. And it's just a question of how you're viewing and interpreting the situation, how mm-hmm. you're viewing the consequences, both in terms of business and personal, that mm-hmm. you can use to scare yourself with it. Um. I'm trying to, to distill a lifetime's worth of work <laughs> into a, a just a few key key things. But one of the very first things we do is we get people to stop looking at things that happen to them as facts and look at them as interpretations. So let's say, for instance, I'm I'm pitching you and I'm looking at you and I see you doing this, looking at your wristwatch. And most people will tell you, uh-oh, he's bored. That's it. I'm done. And so right away we would start saying, "Is there any other reason why he might look at his, uh, you know, at his watch?" Well, it could be that he's got a really important meeting coming up, and he's enjoying this one so much he wants to see how much longer he can savor the moment. If I see you yawn, what does that mean? Uh-oh, he's bored out of his skull, or he didn't sleep well last night. Mm-hmm. So getting people to reevaluate. And there are two factors that determine how much stage fright you'll get. One is your prediction of how well you're going to do. And the other is how important are the consequences of doing well. And that second one is the one that people really exaggerate. Mm. And it's, it's so easy to get people to say, well, if I go in and I, I mess this up, then um, within 10 minutes, they're all calling their friends saying, don't take a meeting with this guy, he's terrible, and my life is over. Um, so it's very easy to run away with those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you three examples of three famous people, and there's dozens and millions, but uh, Laurence Olivier, famously stage fright. Um Barbara Streisand didn't perform for almost 25 years because she was so frightened of going on stage. And I just read recently that Carly Simon is not ever going to perform again because she can't deal with Rod Stewart uh, used to have. I think it was Rod Stewart. I I hope it was Rod Stewart, because otherwise this is uh, (laughs) not going to be a good story if it Rod Stewart used to have the band kick him when he, to get him on stage. Arthur Simon was famous for being kicked in the butt by her. Yeah, band. see, and that was pre-Me Too. So that can't happen now. But, but with Rod, there's a great Rod Stewart story that when he was starting out, he was playing a concert here with a fairly well-known but esoteric blues harmonica player. And he said, I can't believe I'm going to have to go on stage with this guy. And he did the entire show standing behind an amp so people couldn't see him. Wow. There are myriad stories with, with Lawrence Olivier. Um, he called up his friends who were great actors and said, how do you deal with it? 
and he got two answers back, drugs and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have, a, we have a question from the audience. Do you oh, believe uh, that what is effective in a pitch may change over time? Of course. Of course. Um, it changes with uh, wh whomever you're pitching to. Um, that's why you, that's the art of it. Uh, just to go back for a minute to, to art versus science or art versus craft. Um, you have to be able to read the room. So you can't, there's no one size fits. And that was, I think, by the way, why we, why that's another reason why I think we wanted to write this book because a lot of books on pitching are kind of one size fits all. And I'd like to dissuade anybody of that notion that, you know, uh, it's everybody's going to handle it differently. And, and I think especially the, the things that Peter's come up with, because this is his area of expertise, um, the preparation, persuasion and stage fright is going to change as the situation changes and you have to be ready for it. And the main way to be ready for it is do your homework on the person you're pitching to. Well, you know, in, in a couple of your questions, you, you, you gave us some great questions to look at. And one of them has to do with um, what are some of the worst things you can do in a pitch? And probably yes. right up there with number one is be defensive. And the, the thing we look at is how do you handle questions and objections when you're giving a pitch? Yeah. And this there's probably nothing more important than being able to do this and uh, i'll tell you one of the things i learned from an old boss of mine who was a psycholinguist from texas and it used to be funny hearing this thick texas accent coming back at me with academic arguments but he taught me a wonderful thing inadvertently in in science what you want to do when you're arguing is coming up with a killer question the question that the other guy can't answer, so you're right. So he and I would argue constantly. I'd come up with the killer question, but what he would do is paraphrase my question. And in paraphrasing it, he weakened my question. And then his answer would be to his paraphrase of what I had said rather than what I said. Mm -hmm. So before we let anybody go and do a pitch, the first thing we say is, you need to know every possible objection that people are going to have mm -hmm. and don't let them have it. You, you treat each one of those in your pitch because you're going to give a much nicer version of what that is than any, you know, when somebody's sitting there waiting till the question time comes and say, well, I, you know, how are you going to handle this? And what are you going to do when they do you know, that's the worst way to have to answer a question when somebody's practically pointing their index finger at you saying, here's what you missed and here's why you're wrong. But if you've already covered it, but you've covered it in a really nice way, then if they ask you that, oh, well, we've already talked about that. But meanwhile, you then have control over the nicest way to present it. And you need to know what the possible objections are. When I work with entrepreneurs, helping them pitch um, to uh, uh, to investors, I say, you're like a lawyer in front of a jury, and you've got to be able to think about all the potential questions that could be asked of it, 
and not be defensive. And even on the show today, we have one of America's most famous defense attorneys, Ted Simon, who listens to the show. And Ted is uh, on here as well. And he's got cool stuff. We have a, a question from the audience. Aside from reading the room, what's the biggest blind spot that most people have when giving their pitch? Well, I've got one. There's so many. Uh, this is one that I uh, that's kind of personal to me because I've made the mistake so many times in my career. Um, most people go into a room and they pitch to the big, you know, the boss. And they forget that there's all these other people in the room. And there's that lowly person uh, who's just starting maybe in the industry and and they're taking the notes. But that person, chances are, is going to be uh, it's going to be rising in in the so-called ranks, and they're going to and they're going to be in a position to say they might say very bad things about you after the pitch if you ignored them, and you don't know where they'll be two years from from that day. So what I've learned by doing it wrong, which I think is how the best way to learn something is to do it badly, and then you. But I, I think talk to everybody, include everybody. And that's what we do in a conversation anyway. I always think of it as, and it's ironic because I don't drink, but I always think of it like a like a cocktail party. Like uh, um, you're actually trying to include everybody. You're, like Peter says, you're telling a story and you want everybody to hear it. And, and you want to make, make what Jeffrey's saying is, is right on. And you want to make eye contact. And if there are six people in the room and there's one guy that's the big cheese, of course you want to give him a little more time, but everybody gets your eye contact. And, you know, sometimes it ends up that you see somebody in the corner taking notes. Oh, it's just the note taker. I don't have to look at him. Well, a week later, when they're discussing your pitch, he's the one that's presenting all the information and he hates you now. Not a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and besides that, Jeffrey, how often does the boss actually depend on the people in that room all giving him input? I mean, that note taker could say uh, horrible things about yes. it, and that could be the deal killer, right? I have, I, I have to say that. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please. I was I'm, just saying that uh, um, it's happened to me where uh, when I was younger, I... Uh, and it was probably nerves, which is the reason that that managing stage fright is so important is I don't think it was an intentional. Uh, I wasn't snubbing the person intentionally, but you are so nervous to make that buyer was what we say in show business uh, uh, love you that you forget there's other people there who that that the the boss is going to depend on they don't make decisions in vacuums unless they're you know there are a few people who do that but for the most part it's it's a collaborative medium and and if you're not a good collaborator you're probably not going to last long so i i think that that it's really important and and peter's right of course you want to focus on the person who has the power but it's a conversation again so if you think of pitching as a conversation i think it takes a lot of the pressure off you 
But it's interesting. There's actually research. If you're pitching to one person, obviously you want to make eye contact. But the research says 50% of the time is optimal. If you don't make any eye contact, then you look like you're really uncomfortable in your skin. Nobody wants to work with you. But mm -hmm. if you're staring the whole time at somebody, you look like you're doing a ex science experiment with them. And uh, you don't want the guy that tears the wings off flies either. So <clears throat> a nice thing to, to do as a rule of thumb is when they're talking, you look at them. When you're talking, it's okay to look away. Like, mm -hmm. hmm, let me think about that for a second. Yeah, I see. And then bring your gaze back to them. But you definitely want to be looking at that. We have another question from the audience, and this gentleman asking the question has actually bought every single person's book who's um, been on my show. Mm. And he asked, many times when you tell a story to pitch your product, you end up telling your story of why you created the product. How do you handle and prioritize your product story and your story when you get ready to pitch? So what's the answer to that, Peter? Again, a lot of this is in the preparation. And again, we go back to, to the John Scully wisdom, which is, what does your audience want to know? And while they are investing in you, they're investing in your idea. And so you want to make sure, it's very easy to talk about ourselves. Mm. You want to make sure that you really do a good job presenting the idea, particularly hitting those ideas that might make them balk, mm. giving them confidence that you've already thought about that, you already have a plan, and that it, this is going to be a, a safe venture. At the same time, you want to get the excitement of the new idea in there. Jeffrey? Uh, I That was perfect. <laughs> Anything to add to that, that was uh, succinctly and uh, well said. Just a couple of words about preparation. The, mm. There's a tremendous amount of research done on the psychology of persuasion, which, which I find really fascinating. And there's a, let me recommend a, a wonderful book. Um, for those who haven't read it yet, run out and buy Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Maybe you can type that in as well. Um, Jeffrey, I'll let you type while I'm talking because I'm a terrible multi Sure. Um, but among other things, one of the things he talks about, one of his main theses, is that we have two ways of thinking. One is very, very rapid. He calls it type one thinking, which is basically running on intuition. And two, deep thought. And when type one doesn't work, you go to type two. And one of the things he spent his life doing is looking at how people believe that they are, are constantly doing type two thinking, this deep thinking, when in fact they're not at all. They're using their intuition. But what's interesting from a persuasive point of view is type one, when you're pitching, is golden. Because int intuition sounds like it's a very flighty thing, but it contains everything you know, everything you've feel everything you care about, every bias you have. And if I can keep you in type one thinking as I'm pitching to you, that means everything is okay. And everything I'm saying is within the bounds of what you know and believe. The minute I put you into a place where you have to go, wait a minute now, let me figure this out. 
we're already starting to become skeptical. And you're looking at me in a very different way, saying, oh, not so fast, wait, which is the place you don't want him. And uh, this is one of the reasons why Jeffrey and I talk a lot about the preparation stage of pitching, that you have to really do some research on the people you're pitching. What projects have they done before? Where are the areas where they, they've shined, where they like? And stay away from ideas where, you know, in, in Hollywood, it's kind of funny. Uh, we, we give an example where um, a friend of mine is a producer who produced a movie called The Burbs. And what happened was the studio at the end came to him and said, you're killing Tom Hanks. We don't kill Tom Hanks. <laughs> don't do that. So the ending has to be changed. He was so angry, he literally wouldn't go to see the movie premiere. And if you went to him and pitched him and said, oh, I noticed you did the burbs. I loved it. You've just said, I have no taste. You're not going to want to deal with me. So you can't just look at their projects, but you need to know their investment in it and how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. Anything to add, Jeffrey? Uh, you know, again, it comes back to doing your homework. I, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think that's what Peter is really talking about. You, you know, uh, we used to joke about Westerns because Westerns don't get made that much anymore. Uh, but if you bring someone a story about, a we- if you bring someone a Western and you know they hate Westerns, you know, yeah, it, you're pitching to the wrong person. I mean, we right. go through and that I don't think adventure gets, world. Right. I don't but, think. But, but if you that. know that they love movies about kids and particularly helping kids who are in trouble and you can make your Western about a, a Western guy that helps kids, you got a much better shot. Right. Right. Um, I wondered this and you guys had written about this in the book. You wrote about how you tried to use humor and it flopped. How and when should you use humor humor when making a presentation? And what types of humor should you stay away from? Mm. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Being the prime flopper here, um, the very first rule is um, don't tell any humor that's in bad taste. There's an old joke that's not particularly funny that I like to use. which is a kid is at one end of the house and he yells out to his mom way at the other end of the house, hey, mom, is this shirt dirty? She says, yes. The point of the joke being, she's saying, if he's asking, it's dirty. So if there's even the slightest doubt that you shouldn't be doing something, do not use it, not worth it. Um, And what you wanna also be thinking about is telling jokes for the sake of jokes, not good, you should be using your humor to make a point. There, if you do yeah. that, you'll kill with it. Mm-hmm. But but it has to be done really tastefully to make a point. And there's certainly enough out there that, that you can use to make a... Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when I'm talking to, to people I work with in therapy, there's a joke I love to tell. Says um, this was from uh, just to give credit, uh, Emo Phillips, a wonderful comic. This is his joke. He says, "I'm walking down the street and I see a wallet. I bend down to pick it up, open it up. There's 150 bucks cash. I want to do the right thing. So I think to myself, 
if this was my wallet and somebody else picked it up, what would I like to happen? I think I'd like to be taught a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way. That's a good way for us and the show. Do you guys have any parting advice about uh, making presentations? I did. I did love your question about dress uh, for meetings, uh, dressing Go appropriately. Ahead. And I would just say that we heard one story, and, and the story is longer than that. You have to read the book to get the whole story. But someone, I would say, dress appropriately for that person. You know, I mean, I you don't necessarily have to wear a suit just because the person you're pitching to is wearing a suit. But the one thing you don't want to do is what this one person did who was pitching to Boeing. I think it was uh, no, it wasn't Boeing. Where was it, Peter? It was uh, it was Lexus. I think that uh, he came in and he claimed Toyota. 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 He was he claimed that he was going to uh, to revolutionize their 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 engines, and they had already been working on this and spending a million dollars. But the point of the reason I'm bringing this up is that this kid came in 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 Bermuda shorts and uh, flip flops. And that's the one I would leave you with that advice. Don't ever go to a meeting in Bermuda shorts and flip flops. What you're basically saying to, to other people is, I don't really care about what you think. Yeah, there's, it's disrespectful. There, there's a very funny comedian named Dimitri Martin who has a wonderful line where he says, I just got a new apartment in, uh, in Manhattan right around the corner from Carnegie Hall. And when people say, hey, how do I find your new place? He says, oh, practice, 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 then turn left. <laughs> there's, there's no substitute for practice. And, and we'll leave you with a term that's golden, which is state-dependent learning. When you practice, you have to practice under as close to performance conditions as possible. So if you are going to be using notes, practice with your notes. If you're going to be using a mic, practice with a mic. If you're going to wear something that you normally don't wear, wear it. And one of the things that we advise people to do when they pitch is get a bunch of friends together who are experienced and practice pitching to each other and ask them literally to act like a hostile audience and give you practice on your feet of being able to handle problems. Well, I thank you both for taking the time to speak with us. The book was awesome. And I so think much. everybody got a lot out of it today. Uh, and you, uh, hopefully we'll have you guys back again on another book that you might collaborate on. No, well, that would be great. We appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. This was a right. wonderful experience. Everybody have a wonderful, safe weekend. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.